last Sunday was in Jerusalem, a funeral. I'm not talking about the large funerals that took place and draw criticism all over the world. I'm talking about a small funeral. There is something very strange about this funeral. The people who carried the pallbearers, who carried the coffin, and everybody around went towards a small funeral, but everybody was going, going and singing. And they were singing a Hasidic tune, Oshia et Amecha, a very famous Hasidic tune. Not even Hasidic, a Jewish tune. And they did it because the person, the deceased, requested it in his will that when he, on his final destiny, before his late rest, they should sing the song. The person who asked this request was Rabbi Dr. Abraham Twersky. Many of you heard about him. He lived not far from here in Pittsburgh. The last few years he was in Jerusalem. Rabbi Twersky was born 90 years ago to his parents in Milwaukee, in Wisconsin. He came, he's, he's, he's a descendant from a very distinguished Hasidic a family of Hasidic rabbis over the branch of Chernobyl. His father was a kind of a rabbi in uh, Milwaukee. When he grew up in Milwaukee in the 1930s, there was no Jewish day school. There was no cheder. He went to public school. When he was in third grade, the teacher included him in the Christmas play he was the clown in the Christmas play. That's what he says. A week later, the teacher gets a phone call from his mother. The teacher was sure that the mother is calling to complain, how dare you include the son of the rabbi, child of the rabbi in a Christmas play. Well, the mother was not talking about it. She was asking, how is my little boy, my little Abraham is a very short boy how he felt among the other kids are much taller than him. Did he felt uncomfortable? Teacher said, no, he actually felt good. I didn't see anything, any problem. Then the teacher tells the mother, you know, I thought you're calling me, you're calling to reprimand me for including your son in this play, in a Christmas play. Then the mother answered her, if what we gave him at home, the Yiddish guy that we gave him at home, is not strong enough to withstand a Christmas play, then we failed as parents. And Twersky told the story and he wanted to point out um, um, how important is it what you get at home, the early years of your education. When he was nine years old, he was a very good chess player already. And he remembers one Rosh Hashanah I think it was the cantor who came to town, to his synagogue. And by the second day of Rosh Hashanah, the cantor was already a little bold. And he heard that young Abraham is a very good chess player. He says, would you mind to join me? We'll play chess. He tells them, the young boy says, Rosh Hashanah, playing chess? He says, yeah, you're allowed to, no problem. Okay, they played. They played two rounds and they moved on. 
If you are Slater, the secretary, his father's secretary calls him and tells him, your father wants to see you in his office. He comes to his office, he walks in. The father is involved in his studying. He lets him stay for a few, for a minute or two. Then he lifts up his eyes and tells him, you played chess on Rosh Hashanah? Then he said, yeah. The rabbi told me, this cantor told me, that's, that's okay, you're allowed to. His father didn't answer. He looks down in the book. And after, let him stay for a minute or two. And then he lifts up his eyes. He tells him, did you beat him? He said, not only once, twice, both times I beat him. Father smiled and sent him away. Many years later, he analyzed the story. He said, my father was a psychiatrist. He says, he knew, and one day he wanted to give me the message. You don't play chess on Rosh Hashanah. I expect better, for, better of you. And the other hand, he didn't want to leave. I should leave the office beaten down, feel that they disappointed my father. That he asked me, did you, you beat him? At least I'm very proud of you. You're a heaverman. That he got, he accomplished both things. He left in a good mood, or he got a message. This young man grew up. He got married. He became a rabbi for a few years. Maybe I think he said 10 years or something. Then he decided he's going to college to learn to become a psychiatrist. Because as a rabbi, anyway, it was 80% of his job. And the Hasidic rabbis, the great rabbis, a lot of this was, they were psychologists. And he says, why should I do it as a rabbi? I'll do it in a professional way. He went to learn, he went to college. And after that, he moved to, when he graduated, he moved to Pittsburgh and he opened, I think it's called, called the Gateway Clinic, where he, he treated drug abuse and alcohol abuse. People have these problems. His main philosophy was based on the teachings of, from the Baal Shem Tov. In the beginning of the Bible, right in the beginning of creation, the Torah describes the account of the creation and the first day God said, let there be light and so on. Every day God said, let, let the earth bring out vegetation and so on. Animals, birds, fish. Comes to Friday. God says, let us make men. Let us make men? Who is us? Who is he talking to? And number two, Suddenly, God needs help. It was good enough for him. He could do it by himself. The universe, all the galaxies, that God can do by, by himself. The animal kingdom, God did it by himself. Comes to man, he needs help. And who is it? Rashi says, the traditional commentator says, God was speaking to the angels because human being was a little bit like an angel that he kind of advised God asked the permission. So to speak, God did it to teach humans that when do something, they need to ask, they need to ask advice from others. But the Baal Shem Tov came with a revolutionary explanation. He says, God says, let us make men. You know who is he talking to? He's talking to men. Let us together, me and you will create you. Me and men will create a mensch. God says, I will create you. I, can, I will give you the potential. And you 
make, you have to make it. You have to create yourself. You have to become a mensch by yourself. See, a human being is a very strange cre creation. Animals, the way they're created, that's the way it goes. We don't expect from an animal to become better over his. Oh, he will learn. He will be nicer. He will be more kind. He will be more forgiving. You don't expect it. You, will train him, will, you can train him, but you cannot educate him. You cannot understand things. You don't expect from a small lion that he will change eventually. He's born complete. The way he is created is complete. No more expectations. From a human being, there is a lot of expectations. When he's born, Job said, a man is born like a wild donkey. A baby is born, it's all about emotion. Me, me, me. He wants everything for himself. What they teach in the preschool, how to share, how to learn, how to wait online, and so on and on. How to say please and thank you. And as he grows up, God gave him the ability that with his mind, he can control his heart, his instincts. An animal cannot do it. A human being can do it, and he's expected of him to do it. One of the main things that people came to him for help to Dr. Tversky was they were depressed. You know, it's like in the American Declaration, it's written that the right of your human being is for life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of happiness. What is happiness? And now we pursue it for life forever. Looks like human being didn't get it. Didn't reach there yet. What is happiness? How you get to them? There is many people who enjoy pleasures. But pleasures and happiness is two separate things. It's good to enjoy something to get yourself a pleasure. But if pleasure, if people think your pleasure will bring them happiness, it's a big mistake. He says he treated many very rich people. They didn't have any, any, they had a lot of pleasures. No joy, no happiness. He says if you would tell somebody when he would grow up and he was 19, when he was nine years old, 10 years old in 1930s, 1940s, you would tell him what is going to be in 2015, 2020, the cell phones with all the technology with all the comforts, people would say, oh, then we're going to be happy. In 2010, 2015, if we will have everything that the world has to offer, we will for sure be happy. Not only we didn't get, we get more, we get more, more happy, we're probably less happier than the people were in 1930. Then what, you can, you can, many people have pleasures they, some, some people are legal pleasures. They enjoy vacations and they enjoy uh, trips and cruises and sports. Others have other enjoyment uh, pleasures like drugs and alcohol. That's something that's never enough. More that you do, it's, not, it's good for the five minutes that you do it. Any type of addiction is good for the time that you do it, but it's never enough. What is happiness? In 1962, when he was still in medical school, he 
went to see the Rebbe. He had a private audience with the Rebbe. He was lucky enough to have a private audience with the Rebbe. And the Rebbe told him, you're a psychiatrist? You ever read the books of Viktor Frankl, the famous psychiatrist? He said, no, at that time in 1962, Viktor Frankl was not popular. They were told him, I recommend you. I think it would be a good idea for you. He came back to college. He tells the, his professor that the Rebbe told him to read Viktor Frankl's book. He said, ah, he's a sugar now. He read the books and he learned a lot. Viktor Frankl is the famous book, Men's Search for Meaning. And in this book, he makes the whole concept, his whole philosophy is that the human being finds happiness only when he has a purpose when he has meaning, when he accomplished something, when he's doing something good for the world, something good for others, only then he feels good about himself. That's the only way he can feel good. Animals don't eat, uh, this animal doesn't run around on the, in, the, in, the, in the safari and ask himself, what am I doing here? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Animals don't ask this question. Human beings constantly ask this question. And only when they do good, when they accomplish something, when they make a difference, then they feel happy. Then they find happiness. Then they reach happiness. For, a, for Jews, it's very easy. In the Pasha of this week, the Pasha of the Ten Commandments, Pasha Tetrot, the Pasha of the Ten Commandments. God gives us Ten Commandments, for the, but this is the basis of 613 commandments, gives us a life, what to do every minute of our day and a mission and a purpose. Every Jew, he doesn't have to go to the Dalai Lama to look for a purpose. It's ideal. And that brings him joy and happiness. Rabbi Tversky dedicated his life, he said, to help people to find happiness. The song that was sung, that was, that was singing in his funeral was composed by Rabbi Tversky. Oshia et amecha uvarechet nachlatecha Urem venasem adolam is a verse from the Bible that we say it every morning in the prayer and every Shabbat. It says, it means redeem your people, bless your heritage, means also the Jewish people, your land, your heritage, and elevate them, pick them up, make them happier. Forever, adolam. He once prayed and the tune, the tune fell into his head and he started to sing to himself and it went well. Two weeks later, it was his brother's wedding. He was singing it by the wedding. There were many guests there, people picked it up. Some of them were from Israel. They went to Israel. They said, we bought from America a beautiful song. They started to sing it. Before long, it spread all over Israel. It became very popular. It was 1962, 1961 actually, when uh, the, a charter of 100 Hasidim from Israel flew to visit the Rebbe for the high holidays, to visit the Rebbe for the whole high holidays, the month of Tishrei. A whole month they were there. By Simchas Torah, the Rebbe turned to the Israeli Hasidim and he said, sing an Israeli song. They started to sing Oshia et Amecha. The Rebbe loved the song. And soon enough, it became a Chabad, a Chabad tune. First he says, it's a Chabad tune. He says, what, you, what are you going to do? It's a Who is going to know if I, I did it? I, I don't have any... He writes for it. And he said before, years before he died, he told the story that he wrote in his will. He says, my life, he dedicated his life to bring uh, uh, happiness, 
this song brought so much happiness to people that he asked that when he's moving, when he's transition, transitioning from this world to the next, on his last journey, he wants that this song should, should uh, be with them. They should sing it when, when they lay him to rest. Because when he comes to heaven, he says, this will be, when he comes to in front of God, he will say, if I didn't have any other good things, this song brought so much joy to so many people. That's what it's all about. The Rebbe will love the song because it was speaking about, whenever the Rebbe spoke about Russian Jews, that God should help them, they should go and be redeemed from, from the Soviet Union, from the Soviet, former Soviet Union, from the jail, by singing Oshia Itamecha, be praying to God that God should redeem the Jewish people. All of us need a little bit of redemption, and we ask from God, He should elevate us all the way for good. Thank you for joining.